Grit Backstories with two grit mates, Peter and Dave on the CEO Huddle. When I was a little girl, just about 21, my mom says if you get a man, you better get a gun, cause he'll do you good and teach you right to the day that you are with. Then he stay drunk and gone all night and beat you till you're dead, you better learn business in the back It is the CEO huddle, two great mates, Dave and Pete, and a bit of a special, because you've got somebody a little bit special. So this is a really, this is a bit of a coup, really. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've got a guy called Dr. John Demartini, who is probably one of the most renowned speakers on human behavior globally now. Uh, great chart, fascinating. Okay, let's listen. It's the CEO Huddle, brought to you by Millionaire.Live. So, today I'm delighted to be joined by a world-renowned specialist in human behaviour, international speaker, teacher, philosopher, I believe, a global educator, um, somebody who spends his life um, focusing on maximising human potential through awareness. Um, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. John D. Martini. John, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Appreciate uh, the opportunity. This is really apt because I've called this podcast the CEO Huddle. And the principle is that it's about people being their own CEO, otherwise somebody else will be. And I thought, I've, I've listened and, and watched you for so long, and I thought that is absolutely... In, in the frame of, of your teachings, really. It, you, you talk so much about empowerment and authenticity that it, it's just fantastic to have you here today. Well, thank you for having me. You know, I'm a, I'm a firm believer that uh, if we don't empower ourselves intellectually, we'll be told what to think. Yes, and on that, you've, you've got a really, really interesting way of... of explaining empowerment in, in the seven areas of empowerment. And I'd like to talk about that, but the thing that I really enjoy about, about listening to you is you, you create pictures that I think people can follow. You know, there are lots of, of speakers who, some of them think that if you wake up at five o'clock in the morning, your life will change. But you've got a process for people to actually absorb and learn from, from what you talk about. And, and I think one of them is the way that you talk about empowerment and your seven areas that we should all protect. Well, like I said, if, if we don't empower ourselves intellectually, we'll be told what to think. If we don't empower ourselves in business, we'll be told what to do. If we don't empower ourselves in finance and build our wealth, we'll be told what we're worth. If we don't empower ourselves in our relationship, we'll be doing honeydew little activities in the evenings that we don't want to do. If we don't empower ourselves in our social area of life, in our leadership area, we'll probably be told propaganda and misinformation by the media that we'll be running our lives by. If we don't empower ourselves physically, we'll be told what drugs to take and what organs to remove. If we don't empower ourselves spiritually, we'll probably be living by some antiquated dogma that really is not up to date. And I'm a firm believer that the more areas we don't empower, the more we feel overpowered by the world around us. And the more we subordinate and conform to mediocrity to fit in instead of stand out. And we offload our brain decisions onto other people who we think have a better life, which in fact may not, but we may elusively think that they have a better deal. And so if we don't empower those, we pay a price. And so, and, and when, you know, it's interesting when I've asked females and males when they're looking for a mate, a female is looking for somebody that's fit and healthy and vital and uh, virile. They're looking for somebody that's intelligent. They're looking for somebody that's ambitious. They're looking for somebody that has resources. They're looking for somebody that really wants to be with them. They're, they're looking for somebody that's got social savvy. So, you know, they're looking for somebody that's, that's inspired. So all areas, by empowering them, 
give us a competitive advantage, not only in the procreation and, and uh, the mating process, but just in life in general. And I'm a firm believer that uh, it's no reason we can't. I, I, I'm, I've been blessed to empower those seven areas, and I'm absolutely certain that, that there are you know, principles and methods to help people do that. It's not that they can't do it, it's just a matter of applying. And where do you think it goes wrong? Because I would suggest that the majority of people don't empower themselves in those seven areas. So it, it makes perfect sense, but I'm just thinking now about COVID and it, it seems like we, we, we are being taken over by news or, or whatever. We're not thinking clearly. We've been told what to do. Why is it so hard to do something that, that is better for us personally? Well, I don't know. I don't, I, I, I'd rather, I, I don't watch TV unless I'm on it. <laughs> I'd rather be making the news than watching the news. But, you know, each of us live moment by moment according to a unique fingerprint specific set of priorities or values that we hold in our lives. And this set of values, like I say, is unique to us. And when we fill our day with the things that are highest on the values, where we are spontaneously inspired to act, we empower ourselves. But if we allow ourselves to compare ourselves to others, instead of compare our daily actions to our own highest priorities and live by priority, we'll depreciate ourselves, subordinate ourselves to those around us that we think have more than us. We'll walk in a mall and we'll think, well, that individual's smarter than us. And then we'll shrink and we'll inject their values into our life and cloud the clarity of our own mission. And we'll think, well, that person's more successful. And then we'll shrink. And then we'll inject the values of those individuals and cloud our mission. And then we'll see somebody that we think is more empowered financially or more stable in relationship or more socially connected or bigger than the Facebook numbers or more physically fit or more attractive or more spiritually aware. The moment we subordinate and live in the shadows of others instead of standing on their shoulders and reflecting and owning what we see in them that we admire and waken it inside us, we'll minimize ourselves, we'll cloud the clarity of our own mission, we'll inject the values of others into our life and try to live through other people's values, which Freud called the superego, the injection of authority's values that cause confusion and conflict inside us. And we'll disempower ourselves and set goals according to other people's values, which in, in essence are fantasies of trying to live outside our own highest values and to live in theirs, which self-depreciate us and make us live in phobias. And then we end up setting fantasies as goals and self-defeat again. And we get into a vicious cycle and then we want to brain offload decisions to others because we're afraid to make decisions on our own because of the internal conflict. And then we end up in a sense, shrinking instead of shining. Envy, Emerson said, envy is ignorance and imitation is suicide. Yes, I love that. We're here, to, we're here to, to shine, not shrink, and to live by priority, not others. So do you think that it, it starts with those values? And, and I know that you've got a 13-step process, which I did, and it's wonderful to get to what are my real values? You know, what, what do I prioritize and, and what's important to me? And I don't know if we can go through them, but again, I thought that was a wonderful exercise. But do you think the foundation is getting to those highest values? Well, you are spontaneously inspired from within when you're living congruently with your highest value. And you can't wait to get up in the morning and do what's most meaningful. Mine is research and teach. I love doing it. This is my fourth seminar today. I do it every day. I've been doing it 48 years almost. So I, I mean, it's what I love doing. And what most people do is they've never taken the time to look at what their life truly demonstrates. And what they really are spontaneously demonstrating is important to them. They, they go by social idealisms and fitting in instead of actually standing out and being unique and honoring what's really important. If you ask people, I've been asking for probably 42 years values of people, and they'll tell you honesty, integrity, and truth, and all these social idealisms. 
but I'm interested in what your life actually demonstrates that you're committed to doing on a daily basis that nobody has to remind you to do, that you make decisions by moment by moment and finding what the essence of that is, because that's the cornerstone of our existence. And that's why I put the value determination process together, to look at how you fill your space, how you spend your time, what really energizes you, where your money's going, what are you really organized in, where are you really disciplined, what are you thinking, visualizing, and internally dialoguing about your life that's showing evidence of coming true that you want, what are you conversing with others about most, what inspires you the most, what is it that's common to the people that inspire you? What is it you have as a goal that's actually coming true that's really committed? And what is it that you love learning about spontaneously? I look at what your life really demonstrates to structure your life according to what's really priority. Because if you don't fill your day with high priority actions that inspire you, your day is designed by entropy to fill up with low priority distractions that don't. And most people are not really prioritizing their life they're fitting in and they're, they're having entropy and breakdown only because they haven't learned some very simple principles. It's, nothing, it's not rocket science. But if they go and they identify and start being authentic to what their highest value, because their highest value is what their ontological identity revolves around. My highest value is research teaching. My identity is researcher teacher. Yeah. Whatever that highest value is, is what our life is, whether it's being a mother or whether it being a social contributor or physical guru or you know yogi or there's no right and wrong in what it is but you got to be honest about what it is and structure your life where you can do that and get handsomely paid to do that and delegate the rest away so you can live an inspired life and it's absolutely doable i've trained thousands and thousands of people doing it it's yeah. just simply doable spreadsheets gdv fast cars or just great backstories it's Two Grit Mates on the CEO Huddle. There business in the lab There's gonna come a time when you can run. And the other interesting thing is, a lot of people start with goals and goal setting. But you say, sort out the highest values, and then you get to your goals. Yes. Which is well, if your goals and value, highest values don't match, you'll have incongruency. What, what happens is, when you set a goal that is congruent and aligned with the highest value, the blood glucose and oxygen goes into the forebrain, into the medial prefrontal cortex, the telencephalon, which is the executive center, which it has inspired vision because it has connections to V5 and V6 in the occipital lobes. And it sees through associations how you can actually accomplish it. It has strategic planning in the objective area in the, the, the frontal and the parietal area that allows you to strategize. It allows you to want to take action in the motor cortex and the accessory motor cortex. And it also has fibers that go down to the amygdala and calms down the impulses and instincts that distract you. You literally are most masterful if you set a goal that is aligned with what you value most. Your brain rewards you and confirms this is your path of mastery of destiny, not victim of history. But if you subordinate to the world around you, inject all those values, confuse yourself, and try to fit in, you'll end up with chronic fatigue syndrome. You'll end up frustrated. You'll be in your amygdala. Your amygdala is the desire center, the desire to avoid predator and seek prey. So you'll be looking for fantasies and trying to avoid nightmares. And you tend to set immediate gratifying, compulsive and addictive behaviorals as goals, fantasies that are immediate gratifying you know, you'll be, you'll, you'll not be in your executive function. And that's where you have frustration and lack of resiliency. And this is where you are setting up fantasies instead of real objectives. Most people don't know the difference between a fantasy and a real objective. An objective has both sides, the pros, the cons, the positives, the negatives, and you're ready to mitigate the risks of those challenges. And you're pursuing the pain and pleasure in the pursuit of a great cause. Fantasies are hedonistic in pursuit that are just a positive without a negative. And then what happens is you have anxieties and fears pop up in your mind because you're setting a fantasy. And this is a balancing act, an intuitive balancing act to try to break your addiction to the fantasy and set a real objective. But when you set real objectives according to real highest values, you achieve things and you build momentum, incremental momentum. And in that highest value area, you are embracing challenge. You're pursuing challenges that inspire you instead of attracting challenges that don't. And you love to tackle 
the challenges that the world is facing and solve them and serve people and you reward it economically and you build momentum in all areas of your life including economics yeah and that's how you you talk about fear you say that that actually um fear is about if you set an objective you understand the pitfalls you don't suddenly get shocked by them well fear is your friend it's bringing up the things you didn't plan and mitigate in advance because you're pursuing a fantasy with your amygdala. When you're setting up a fantasy, you're assuming there's a positive without negative. It's the positive thinking mentality. And then you get sideswiped by the things you're not willing to look at. But when you're setting a real objective, you're thinking, what are all the things that could go off and how do you prepare for them? So you, if they happen, you're prepared. Plan B. I was coming down many years ago I lived in Trump Tower before my, when my wife passed away 16 years ago. We were living in Trump Tower before him. And um, we lived underneath the Donald. And one day we were coming down for going for lunch to go get some sushi. And Donald came down with us. We saw Donald quite a bit. I've known him for 29 years. He's a character. So we're going downstairs. We get down to the lobby. And there's about a dozen disciples of his downstairs. And we're walking out the swivel door with him and chatting with him and his team. And he's building the Hudson River project at the time. There's a bunch of buildings along the river there that was dilapidated areas and he built it up and made a fortune. And what he's doing is they're building another tall 75 story building. And when, I, when, I, when he was doing it, he, he had 12 people there and he says, you're involved in the geography and the geology and I wanna know everything 80 feet down, eight stories down, anything that we might run into, I wanna know in advance. Do we have Indian burial grounds? Do we got rock formations? Anything that might deter and cause us a problem in the building of this building, you're responsible for knowing everything that could go wrong and having 13 contingency plans for everything that could go wrong so we never have an obstacle that stops us. And these people were specialists on everything that could go wrong to mitigate any risk, to make sure he didn't have delays, extra cost, et cetera, in advance. And he was paying these people to make sure in advance he had a real objective, not a fantasy. Right. That's the difference between building skyscrapers and having fantasies. Yes, yes. And I'm also thinking about, uh, there, I think there are two major things. One is seeking approval, and the other is being scared of being judged. And it just strikes me talking about Donald Trump. He doesn't seem to seek approval. <laughs> Really this opinion is more important than anybody else's. <laughs> I seem to care what you think, really. I'll judge that. But, but from the except, except, believe it or not, except Donald, believe it or not, behind the scenes, privately, with his family, he listens. Right. He, believe it or not, that's where you see the other side of Donald than what you see on TV. Yeah. His family, Milani particularly, she can keep him in check. So maybe that's another good rule. Listen to your closest allies, maybe that's true. Yeah, she, he surrounds himself with people that the ones he does respect, he listens to. Yeah. How do, how do you think people can go from um, seeking approval, which, which stops you being yourself, it, it, it forces you to be whatever you, you think they want you to be? And, and again, one thing you talk about is authenticity, which is a big thing. How does somebody who is programmed seeking approval, how do you stop that? Okay. I want you to imagine this. I'm going to develop this. Imagine uh, the fear of public speaking. Now, and, and I have people that say, oh, I've got a fear of public speaking. Okay, well, if I take you and I have you speak in front of a kindergarten class, do you have that fear? He goes, no. First grade class, no. Second grade class, no. Sixth grade class, no. High school, no. College, ooh, yes. No. Professors, yes. Executive peers, yes. Okay, so you don't have a fear of speaking. You have fear of speaking in front of somebody that you think knows something you don't, wow. that you feel intimidated by. Yeah. And the moment you exaggerate their knowledge and minimize you, you become self-absorbed and then your message is not able to get out because you're thinking of yourself instead of the people. So what you have to do is you have to find out what exactly do you perceive this individual 
displaying or demonstrating that makes you think they have something you don't. And then you have to go and look inside yourself, go to a moment where and when you perceive yourself displaying or demonstrating the same or similar behavior and trait until the quantity and quality of what you display is equal to theirs and level the playing field. And once you realize that what they have is just a different version and you have the same thing in your own values, not their values, but in your own values, you can speak up and you don't have intimidation and you're not going to subordinate, minimize yourself to them. The reason why the Toastmasters has you speak on your first talk in front of people about your own life is because nobody knows more about your life than you. And that's the icebreaker. So if you go outside your core competence of what you're absolutely certain you know, why are you speaking about it? But if you stick to what you're certain about and that you know, and you identify what you stick to that's really truly something you're certain about, you don't have a fear of it. So the moment you get outside your authentic self and the moment you exaggerate somebody else, you just fell in self-depreciation. And then you brain offload and think they have it. And this is the conformity process that blocks people from standing out. But you know what's interesting is every human being wants to make a difference. But you can't make a difference fitting in. You make a difference standing out. So there's a yearning to be your own authentic self and to be honored and loved and appreciated for who you are. But unless you're willing to act that and live by your highest values and live by priority and stir up the challenge paradigm that's there and be ridiculed, to be great is to be misunderstood. If you're not being challenged and ridiculed and, and it, you're not going to make a difference in the world. So the paradox is, you find out whatever you perceive in the individual around you that they have. Find out where you have it. And once you see you have it in your own form equally, you just have a communication. And now you're having a dialogue. And that's what allows you the most sustainable relationships and leadership, in business, in relationships at home, etc. So as long as we are too humble to admit what we see in others inside ourselves, we're going to be standing in their shadows, not on their shoulders. Grit Backstories with two grit mates, Peter and Dave on the CEO Huddle. Their business in the land barrel, there's gonna come a time when you can run. And almost the, the online world of Instagram and things, it seems that if you put a false image up and then get criticised, that has more effect than if you're authentic, doesn't it? Well, your design, see... If I walked in, imagine this, I'm in front of a group of people and I'm speaking. And I walk in and somebody says, oh, Dr. Martini, you're amazing. And they start puffing me up and they start praising me and they start doing that. And I humble myself below where they want to put me. And I go, well, thank you. But, you know, talk to my girlfriend. She may have a different view, you know. And I humble myself below where they want to put me. They'll keep lifting me up. They'll keep praising me. But if they go in and say, well, Dr. Martini, you're really amazing, da, 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 da. and I go in and I go, you have no idea how amazing I am. I'm so amazing, you can't even comprehend it. You're not well off enough to even understand how amazing I am. If I puff myself up and go above them and get arrogant, they'll criticize me. They go, well, what an us, you know? They will automatically bring you down. So anytime we go in society and we go above and inflate ourselves, we're designed to be criticized, to be put back into our real authentic self. And anytime we minimize ourselves, we're designed to be lifted up, to go back to our authentic self. And society is actually offering a magnificent feedback to make sure we're authentic. Our physiology is doing it. Our intuition is doing it. Our sociology is doing it. And even our collective society attracts events into our life to make sure we're authentic. Pride before the fall, humility before the rise. The dull, right, for the people that are down and out, and the tall poppy syndrome. Nature is striving to maximize efficiency and effectancy, and authenticity is maximum efficiency. And so we're, we're automatically being guided. So I don't see criticism as bad. Only when you infatuate with praise do you think criticism is bad. I see both of them simultaneous mechanisms to get me to be authentic. Because the moment I'm authentic, I get respected. Interesting. In the UK, we have this reputation for building people up. And, and we do this with music stars, with, with footballers in particular. There'll be a footballer that's suddenly a world beater. 
and then you see the press start to pull them back and they built them and that's the, that's the same dynamic isn't it we it, it, well it's, it's it's not so much the external world that matters it's the internal because if you actually start to believe that you're greater than you are you're on your way down that's why i'm not a promoter of success because i'm a man on a mission a mission doesn't attach to success or failure Success means you have short vision, little experience, and you're on your way down because you got puffed up. Shame, you know, when, you're, when you feel like you failed, you're on the other side. That's because, but what that does is get you back onto priority. So I see that success is a depurposing, failure is a repurposing, but I'm interested in staying purposeful. If I'm purposeful and I'm focused on what my highest value is, which is the expression of what my mission is, I don't get distracted by the accolades of success or failure. Those are distractions. Those are elusive distractions where I tend to exaggerate myself with pride or minimize my shame. Neither of those are me. So how am I going to expect people to love me and appreciate me if I'm not willing to be me? And if I'm me, I don't consider myself either one of those. I see myself with equanimity and I see myself with equity with other people because that's the only sustainable relationship you'll ever have with people is equity, not pride or shame. Mm. Pride makes you narcissistic and expect them to do things for you, which is futile. And shame makes you tend to be altruistic and makes you do things for others, which is futile. The, neither one of them are long-term sustainables. When you're sustainable, you have equity. And you realize that they have their own unique values. They're not demonstrating something I don't have. I just have it in my own values, and I'm expecting it in theirs. Einstein said, when you're a cat expecting to swim like a fish, you'll beat yourself up. If you're a fish expecting to climb like a cat, you're going to beat yourself up. But if you honor your own form of expression and honor theirs, they don't have something you don't have. They have it in a different form based on their values. You have it in your form and your values. Let's share those experiences and honor each other for both of our expressions. And did you always have this, John? I know that you, you, you became an avid reader from not reading, but did you, did you grow up you know, as a young kid thinking about the world and things or did one did you have this crazy moment where you thought i'm on a mission uh when i was when i was a very young child i was a year and a half old i found out i had speech impediment so i had to go to a speech pathologist at a year and a half old and I had to wear buttons and, and strings in my mouth to try to use my muscles properly because i couldn't pronounce properly when i was in uh, i also was born with an arm and leg deformity and i had a i had to wear braces on arms and legs so I was kind of, uh, not everybody wanted to hang out with me because I was wearing clunky braces and I couldn't speak properly and I had awkward movements in my mouth. When I got into elementary school, first grade, I tried reading. They tried to put the big book there with a pointer and trying to, you know, Jack and Jill went up the hill kind of stuff. And it wasn't working for me. I had dyslexia and I was twisting things and I wrote backwards. And so I just couldn't spell. So. I was told by my first grade teacher in front of my parents, because I made the parents come to the class and said, I'm afraid your son is never going to be able to read. He's not going to be able to write. He's probably not going to be able to communicate very effectively because of speech impediment and uh, probably won't go very far in life or amount to much. But if I were you, uh, put him in sports, because when I got four years old and I finally got out of my braces, I just wanted to run and I became the fastest runner. And so, so put him into sports. So I got into sports and eventually into surfing, but Texas wasn't the surf capital, Hawaii was. So I eventually, I, I dropped out of school. When I was 13, I left home, I dropped out of school. I lived on the streets. I hitchhiked out to California and down to Mexico. And then I made my way to Hawaii and I became a surfer. I got to be in the surf movies and surf books and magazines and stuff when I was a teenager. And I, was not academic. I'd never read a book from cover to cover until I was 18. But at 18, well, the week before my 18th birthday, I met a teacher who absolutely inspired me. And, and that was the night after meeting him, that was the first night in my life that I thought maybe I could overcome my learning problems and someday learn how to read and someday become intelligent. Because I dreamed about being intelligent, but I never thought I would be. And then once I learned I could read, which was a slow process, I mean, I started memorizing 30 words a day until my vocabulary was strong enough where I could read. It was a, it was a slow process. But once I did, I never stopped. And now, over, over 30,500 books I've devoured now. Wow. 
And what was it the teacher said? Because I'm interested in, there's always some, there's somebody in somebody's life that changes their direction. What was it about the teacher that inspired the you? The in Hawaii? Yeah, yeah. Well, he said that we have a body, we have a mind, and we have a soul. The body must be directed by the mind. The mind must be guided by the soul in order to maximize who we are as potential. He said we have to, what we think about, what we visualize, what we say to ourselves, and how we act determines our destiny. And he said that we must set goals for ourselves, our family, our community, our city, our state, our nation, our world, and beyond for 100 to 120 years. And take command of our life and take command of our thoughts, our vision, our internal dialogue, and our actions. And make sure it's prioritized on what's really the most important thing in our life. And we will build momentum and nothing will stop us in the outer world from achieving what we want. Nobody ever talked to me like that. <laughs> Whoa. That was the night I decided I'm going to take command of my life. And I was 17 years old. It was November 18th. So we're almost on 48 years in November. In about two months will be, not even two months, but will be uh, 48 years ago. And that was the beginning of me. I went to a, a health food store, I think the next day, and I decided I was going to try to get a book and read a book. And I found a book there with a long-haired hippie guy that looked just like me. So I had long hair and a beard at the time. I was a, a 60s guy, you know. <laughs> and I, I thought, if that guy can write that book, I bet I can read it because he looked like me. So I got this book, and it was called Chico's Organic Gardening and Natural Living. <laughs> That was the first book I ever opened up and actually tried to do something with. I couldn't read half the words, but the pictures made sense. I got a few of the words. And I, I kept that book till this day because it was the first book I ever tried to read in my life. Wow. And, and that was the beginning of my journey. And then I started living with dictionaries and encyclopedias and started to grow my vocabulary until I'm able to speak. And then my speech concerns was a gradual, slow process. Because I have some audio cassettes of me speaking 40 years ago, and you would go, whoa. You know, it was, I made up words, I, 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 it was very awkward. But today I'm articulate. But I've worked thousands and thousands of hours on that. Spreadsheets, GDV, fast cars, or just great backstories. It's Two Grit Mates on the CEO Huddle. Their business in the And, and can I ask what 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 did your parents think about that journey from, you know, being the kid with so many barriers to overcome to? Well, they knew I wasn't going to make it in school, and they knew my dad tried to teach me uh, to be a little entrepreneur. By age nine, I, I had to pay for food, clothing, and rent when I was nine. I had to work in the neighborhood to make money to pay to stay at the house, and my dad was trying to teach me real life stuff, and he says that's the real world, son. You got to pay for things. You don't want to be a vagrant, et cetera. And that was fine. And, but when I turned, they lived in, they moved from Houston, Texas to Richmond, Texas. And we went to Richmond, Texas. I lived in the country and I didn't really want to be there. And the schools were crazy. And there was a lot of gangs, a lot of drugs, and a lot of racial issues. And I didn't, I didn't like it there. And so I, I left home. I, I lived in a bowling alley. I lived in a park. I lived in a, a car. I lived at some friends occasionally. Um, and I realized that academic and school was not going to cut it. I wasn't going to be able to make it there. And I did whatever little jobs. And then I, at 14, my parents uh, gave me a ride to the freeway and said, go, go live your dream. You're going to go ride big waves. And I hitchhiked out to California. And I said, I was on a mission to go out and ride big waves in the world. And I did. I went to there in Mexico and I went off to Hawaii. And so I lived in Hawaii from the tail end of 15 to 16 to all the way to 18 on the North Shore. And on my 65th birthday, I'm 66 now almost, but on my 65th birthday last year, I made a commitment when I was 16 to come back and surf Pipeline and Lani Akea. And on my 65th birthday, I surfed Pipeline and Lani Akea last year. Wow, that's big, 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 big waves. Yeah. How do, how do you keep so fresh? I, I mean, I watched you today talking about one to many. Um, and then I, I saw you posted something about fear. And I'm thinking, well, you, you pretty much know everything by now. <laughs> How do you keep fresh? Oh, believe it or not, I study every day. I'm, I'm just finishing up in the final edit of an 826-page textbook on 
believe it or not, the sun. I, I'm a, I'm a, I write on all different things, anthropology, chemistry, mathematics, physics, you know, cosmology. I write on every imaginable thing and um, quantum theory, etc. But I'm just finishing up a new textbook, a two volumes set on the sun, on the relationship on nuclear transformation that goes on in stellar nucleosynthesis as it relates to human consciousness. And it's a pan-psychic exploration of about a thousand different writers throughout the ages on panpsychism and on the idea of an order in the universe and how stars are displaying this order in the atomic elements. And it's a, it's a real go down the rabbit hole kind of textbook. It's very technical textbook on, on the helioseismology and the sun, but it's really all about our journey as a human being on stellarizing ourselves. We, we started out nomadically uh, geologically in locations and we eventually go to to create clans and families and kingship and clans and townships and then you know communities and cities and states and then nation and now we're global but we can easily see we're going now throughout the solar system that's the next step and so we're going to eventually encompass this solar system 200 300 400 years from now a thousand years from now solar travel solar environments, living places. We're going to conquer gravitation, radiation. We're going to conquer all those things. And I'm writing a textbook preparing for that journey wow. uh, on solarization, man's relationship to the sun, from worshiping up in ancient times to honoring it and conquering it, conquering the understanding of the sun. So it's a journey of that. So it's, a, it's an exploration of very in-depth uh, nuclear physics and chemistry and, and the journey of our consciousness. Wow. Do you think that we've evolved in in lots of ways, and and that's I guess that's one that we you know we're going we're going to planets now eventually as you say, but do you think we're less authentic now than we were a hundred years ago? Do you think do you think more people are living somebody else's life than they were a hundred years ago? No, I think that that you probably have a similar ratio of people. It's like, you know, there's a, in a social structure. If you study social structure you realize that you can't have everybody the CEO. Yeah. Nobody's gonna to wanna to do the work, the, the, the other work. Yeah. This, as Alec McKenzie said in the time trap, the people at the very top levels of society, they're visionaries, they are planners, and they're delegators. And the people at the bottom are doers. They don't think a lot, they don't plan a lot. They're not foresighting, they're hindsighting. And so in a social structure, you have kind of like a pyramid or a conical structure um, that is necessary in order to make this thing work. You can't have everybody a CEO, but and you can't have everybody at the bottom. You got to have a structure to it. Yeah. And this structure is inevitable and has has its own mathematics to it. There's actually a mathematical relationship uh, on people on the planet. And as the population grows, that same structure is there, and substructures there, kind of like the holarchy. But it's it's still a necessary structure of mathematics. You can't have everybody all of a sudden, all aware, you know, fully conscious. So there's, there's very few that become the Nobel Prize winners. There's very few become the great Olympic medalists. There's very few in every field that become, by Benson's law, so skilled and so masterful that they lead the pack. You have different people at different levels that subordinate and subordinate and subordinate. The question is, there's no caste system that says you have to be at anyone but you may choose to subordinate and trap yourself in any of those layers, but you have the capacity as a human being to rise to the top. And if you're at the top, you're designing your life. At the bottom, you're following the duties. You're living ontologically at the top and deontologically by duty at the bottom, by design at the top, by duty at the bottom. Here, you're basically told what to do. Here, you're telling what to do. And most people are not willing to take on the accountabilities that it takes to be here. Yeah. and the accountabilities of the repercussions because in order to rise at the top at the level of the soul you might say the celestial soul nothing's missing in us at the level of the existence of the senses terrestrially things appear to be missing things we're too proud or too humble to admit we have inside us which is where we live in the world of terrestrial the place of judgment where we're judging people but if we live by our highest values and live objectively and have equanimity and equity and we rise to the top and empower ourselves we have the responsibility of owning our hero and our villain and integrating and owning all parts and not hiding from any part of ourselves. That's the accountability 
of all of them. As Nietzsche said, he says, I'm the most virtuous, I'm the most vicious. And Machiavelli had said in The Prince, you must be able to embrace both sides of yourself if you want to lead. This is one of the reasons why may, they may not like Donald, but Donald embraces his hero and his villain. And that's what makes him the powerful guy that he was. That's, yeah. that's uh, the lesson that we all must face. Yeah. And I guess the, the, the choice was when he was elected, I guess people looked at the other side and said, well, I know there's a villain, but you're hiding it, maybe. <laughs> well, anybody that thinks there's a saint is blind from the sinner. <laughs> I don't, I don't, uh, I don't ever pretend that I'm, I'm one-sided. I, I don't, it's a waste of time. I, I went through the Oxford Dictionary, as neurotic as I am, I went through the Oxford Dictionary, because I lived in dictionaries, that was the best of the dictionaries. And I went through and I found circling word by word, page by page, I went through every page and found every human behavioral trait that a human being can have. And I circled it. And then I put out to the side the initials of the individual who has the most highest expression of that trait that I knew, that I'd ever seen about, read about, or, or watched. And then I asked myself, where and when do I display and demonstrate that behavior to the same degree as I see in the most extreme example? And I found out that I had 4,628 traits, all traits that were in the dictionary. I found every one of them inside myself. I didn't need to get rid of any of them. They all serve me, and they're all lovable. I'm, I'm not nice. I'm nice sometimes and I mean. If you support me, I'm a pretty nice little pussycat. You challenge me, I can be a tiger. I can be kind, I can be cruel. I can be this, I can be that. I can be both sides. I'm a, a combination of both sides of life. The hero and the villain, the saint and the sinner, the virtue and the vice. I'm honest and dishonest. I'm all the above if I'm really truly facing the truth about my nature. Mm. And when I finally realized I had all those things, the buttons that people pushed on me to make me feel good that would hook me or feel bad that would hook me melted away. Because now, no matter what you say about me, it's true in some context. <laughs> That's an amazing way to deal with, you know, sometimes people say, let me, the, the trouble with you is, I mean, it's disarming if you go, yeah, I know that. I had, I had a guy come up to me, first this lady came up to me and she says, Dr. Martini, you're a terrible father. And I said, how come? I said, well, you hardly see your kids. I said, why would you want a terrible father seeing his kids? Are you sick? And she goes, oh, you have an answer for everything. That's my job. I'm a teacher. And then this person says, oh, you're, you're deceitful as hell. And I said, yeah, I've deceived myself on how much more time I want to spend with you. I found that no matter what they say, there's a way of spinning it and having some fun with it. And then you can dance through life instead of be a victim of circumstance in life. Yeah, I love that. that that's, that's, I'll be doing that tonight, I promise you. Um, so what would you say, I've got an 18-year-old daughter who, who is just uh, finding herself and, and going out in the world. What, what, I give her advice, but you're probably, you've got some better advice. What would you say to somebody in her position? To, I would to find out what she, she really, 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 really authentically, truthfully values in herself. Yeah. Not what she thinks everybody's expecting from her, but what does she really, really want to dedicate her life to and do? And look at what she's spontaneously doing that nobody has to remind her to do, that she just loves doing. And help her structure her life so she can do something that's deeply inspiring and meaningful to her on a daily basis. Mm. Because we, we started using the value applications in 20 universities in, in Tokyo, all the universities in Japan. And they've been doing it as guidance counseling. It's been helping people because a lot of times they're doing what the parents think you should do and what this counselor says and this and that. And then they find themselves in a job that's uninspiring to them. And then they're, they're trapped. And then they get caught. They have kids and marriage and then they got security. And then, but at 18, you have the freedom to be authentic to yourself and find out what it is you really, really want to educate your life to. And your life demonstrates it. The only thing that clouds the clarity of that is your comparisons. If we stop comparing ourselves to others for a moment, and just look at our own life objectively. It reveals what's important to us. Yeah. And if we give ourselves permission to prioritize our life that way, whoo, makes a difference. And you're not gonna live an inspired life unless we're doing something we love doing that gets remunerated for it and get paid to do something we love and then pay for people to delegate the rest away. I don't do anything but research, write, travel, teach. <laughs> and most of the teaching is now on Zoom, so I'm traveling that way. But I research, write, travel, teach. I don't cook. I haven't cooked since I was 24. I don't drive cars. I've, it's been 30 years since I've driven a car. I don't bother with that. Anything other than research, I travel, teach, I have specialists around me who love doing it to take care of that for me 
So I don't have to do anything other than what I'm inspired to do. Yeah. And there's, you can totally live your life in an inspired way if you do that. But if you're sitting there doing low party things and devaluing yourself and feeling frustrated and going, oh, I got to do that. I have to do that. You're living by duty, not design. And that's totally your doing. You have never prioritized your life. And when you prioritize your life and you do something that serves other people, that is deeply meaningful, that you want to solve problems to help them with, you get remunerated beautifully for doing it. And you get the most income and have the most prosperous life. And you have plenty of money to delegate the other stuff too. Yeah. So I'm a joke. Somebody was joking with me. They said, you delegate everything. Yeah. I said, what about your relationship? I said, well, look, if I have a beautiful girlfriend, which I do. And I said to her, um, right now, I'm not a specialist in lovemaking, but I have a person. His name is Hugh Jackman. Uh, if I was to delegate and have him make love with you, would you still love me? He would take care of the lovemaking part. And she says, I would love you even more. <laughs> well, I'm joking when I say I'm not, I'm not having you do that. But the point is that, 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 that if, if it's not something you're inspired to do and you're great at doing it, surround yourself with people that are great at doing it. And everybody goes up and you get to you help the economy by engaging other people in doing what they love doing. So you can go and do what you love doing. Yeah. That's called Ricardo's competitive advantage. And you're doing what's most competitive advantage. And that's always in the path of your highest value. Yeah. And I know you're in the secret, but do you think that's when the law of attraction happens as well? That when, the, when the book came out? Well, if you, if you live to your passion and, and you, know, you, you follow from your highest value, then that momentum creates the well, law. Well, yeah, because, because the, when you're living according to your highest values, you have an inspired mission. And that is where you synchronize. You have a pulvinar nuclei in the thalamus, which is a subcortical region, the diencephalon, that takes all sensory information into, and before it goes into the corona radiata up into the cortex, it passes through this, this gate and filtering mechanism. And it filters anything that's not helping you fulfill your highest value. Your brain is a highest value seeking and fulfilling organ. It filters things out to get you to fulfill authenticity. It's really designed to do it. That's why a mother walking in a mall, she'll spot children's clothes, children's entertainment, educational items, et cetera. She won't see business items, but her husband who may be running a business, an entrepreneur, won't see children's items. He'll see business items. So we filter our reality because we'd be overwhelmed by infinity if we didn't have a filter. We filter our reality according to what we value most. And we have an attention surplus order in our highest values. And we have attention deficit disorder in our lowest. So we're functioning for mediocrity if we're in our lower values, trying to live by other people's expectations. But we shine and actually excel if we live by our highest values. So our brain is set up to help us master our lives. Right, right. So um, we're running out of time, John. I know you're busy. You've done four of these. You've probably got some more to do today, I, I, I bet. I'd like to ask you something. If you went for dinner to your favorite restaurant, wherever that may be, and you could choose four people, alive or dead, to share the evening with you, who would you put around your table? Which four people? Well, without a doubt, Albert Einstein was one, because he's had such an impact on my life all the way since I was 17, 18. Because when I first came home from Hawaii, um, I, I, I was given a little affirmation by this teacher that I met, that because I told him I didn't know how to read and I had learning problems, I've never read a book in my life. He said, every day, say to yourself, I'm a genius and I apply my wisdom and said every single day, never miss a day for the rest of your life. I've never missed a day in 48 years almost. Never missed a day. I said it every single day. I later learned a genius is one who listens to their inner voice and follows the inner vision of their soul and obeys. And I asked my mom, what exactly is a genius? She said, well, people like Leonardo da Vinci and Albert Einstein. I said, well, then get me every book that's ever been written by those two men or about those two men and let me start devouring those. So Einstein was one that had such an impact on my life. He died in 55, I was born in 54, and he had an impact. In fact, where he wrote the E equals MC squared, I went to that blackboard and made sure I wrote my formula there on that blackboard. I went to his office. But so Einstein would be definitely one. Yeah. I think that uh, he's the one that had the impact. I also would love to have met Plato because I've, I've been in a fascination by the great philosophers. I would also like to meet Thales who's a pre-Socratic philosopher. He, was, he cornered the olive oil market at the time, back to the seventh century BC. He was a, 
a philosopher and thinker, but he was also savvy enough to grow and, and make millions. He was one of the, the wealthy guys at the time. So I'd, I'd like to meet Thales, I'd like to meet um, um, Plato. I also would have loved to interact with Tesla and then Einstein. Those are four people that I'd put at the table. Wow, that, that would be a, that's a high level table, I've got to yeah. say. And that's a great point to end on because I, I promise you this is true. Today, when I listen to your live feed, the, and everybody's making comments and saying thank you and all this, and I put genius with a, with a thumbs up. So, because you are, and um, I know you, you, you know, we don't do this kind of thing, but your teachings are just, um, just out, out of this world, really. And I think the way that you put things, and, and I'm going to go through the 13 steps for highest values with my daughter. And I, I think that kind of thing can change people's lives, John. So I think, you know, for everybody, I want you to, to carry on spreading the gospel because it's, uh, it's so valuable to, to people out there. Well, I love what I do. I believe that everybody deserves to do the same and have that in their life. I, I'll do everything I can when I work with people to try to help them do that. And uh, yeah, I, I, I love learning. I just can't think of anything I'd rather do, but learn and share. That's yeah. my favorite thing to do in life. And, and I believe that people deserve to find whatever that is and do that. Yeah. I don't care what it is. I'm not gonna judge what it is. Whatever that is that inspires you, do it. I, I, I met a guy that loved skateboarding, right? He became one of the champions in skateboarding. I skateboarded when I was a, teen, a teenager, but that was his love. And he went worldwide with, with skateboarding. He found his, his inspiration. Yeah. And I'm a firm believer you gotta find that gift, yeah. find what that is. That's what the highest value is about. Brilliant. Well, this has been absolutely fantastic fun. I've, I've loved every minute and I'm sure everybody else will. And I'd love to do something again, John. So, um, yes, I look forward to it anytime. It's got to be a part two. Perfect. This is too good. <laughs> Thank you for that. And, and, uh, and please let people know about the value determination, uh, drdmartini.com, the website, because yeah. it could really do amazing opportunities to help people get clear about what they want in life. So okay. just drdmartini.com, value determination process. Okay. Have, that will be helpful to whoever listens. I'll, I'll put that out there with, with this when I put this out too. Well, have a good day, John. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Speak Appreciate again. it. Look forward to our next interview. We'll speak again. Take care. Great Backstories with two great mates, Peter and Dave on the CEO Huddle. There's business in the There's got to come a time when you